run-of-the-mill flies. Suffocate your monkey and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast. <laughs> wow. Uh, I was going to say choke, but I thought that might be a little... <laughs> choke your monkey. But I thought I'd... Well, I didn't, didn't stay away from it, as it turns out. Uh, Strangle your rat. <laughs> welcome, we're a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. And with an intro like that, maybe there's... A reason. This is episode 126, and my name is Randy. And I've just realized, um, my name is Jakob, and I've just realized that I think I've been rubbing off on you. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm just realizing what I've just said is also yes. can be easily misconstrued. But ah. what I'm trying to say is that I'm the dirty mind in here, and then you're just like this sort of this patron saint of of you know of of like polite people, and I'm just like. Just well, just drawing you towards the dark side. Like I'm, like just it, you know, it leading is you astray. This is, this is this is an opening for the ages between you know, <laughs> uh, choking monkeys and rubbing off on one another. Anyway, hello, hello, big welcome to all of our listeners. <laughs> um, please stay with us past this opening. Um, thank you, all of you out there who support <laughs> us. They're gone. <laughs> Uh, we're in the throes, I guess, of sort of a cross-themed month. We opened our June talking about Carnosaur, which was the domino that fell into our Patreon tie-in discussion, an episode where we were talking about Jurassic Park to celebrate the 30th anniversary of that release. Uh, and that was the domino that tipped into our Michael Crichton theme, which we are now in the middle of what we've been calling Michael Crichton June. So last week, we were here talking about, it was a double episode where we talked about Westworld and Future World. And uh, today and next week, we've got more Crichton talk coming. So, Crichtomino. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, all right, but we'll take a moment to whip out the bulletins. And <laughs> nothing sounds right. Nothing sounds right. Okay, get out the bulletins and we'll go through our announcements. I mentioned our Jurassic Park episode, which is now on Patreon. So that's at www.patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. And the episode was released almost to the day, I think a couple of days off of the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park, hitting theaters and changing audience expectations for special effects forevermore. Earlier this month, um, in our Soderbergh Shallow Cut on Patreon, we talked about Che, whether you see it as Che 1 and Che 2 or Che all in one movie, we talked about it. Um, the passion of Che. A passion che of heart. Che. Che <laughs> or, heart. or as you call it, Che, the whole bloody affair. Uh, exactly. So we talked about Che on Patreon. And that, of course, is partnered with, because we're always doing two Soderbergs, our, our deep cut to start off our month here in the main show was our conversation with our good buddy Ian from Psychotronic Cinema. We talked about the good German. All right, as per normal, 
on Patreon, normal for 2023 at least, our John Cassavetti's marathon will continue as uh, we're going to discuss and release an episode on that discussion about Minion Moskowitz. So, and that'll be the midpoint of our Cassavetti's journey because that'll be our sixth entry. So all of that can be found on Patreon for just three bucks a month, uh, $4.50 Canadian. Um, and you get all of this month's content, which is great, plus many more conversations. And I should also mention we do have another bonus uh, tie-in episode coming up, which sort of ties into Jurassic Park, I guess, via director, and also ties into an upcoming uh, release to cinemas and we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark and that is coming up so there's 50 episodes plus there's some good stuff coming up uh check out our Patreon offerings if you're not down for a subscription but if you're willing and you know interested in giving us a one-time donation by all means we appreciate such a gesture you can do so at www.kofi.com slash uncut gems pod that's Kofi, ko-fi.com slash pod, Or if you're up to leave us a review, wherever you get your podcasts, that's a small gesture that helps us a lot, getting our voice out there and helping us find our audience. That's appreciated. Or you know what? Just keep listening. Tell your friends. That's appreciated too. So, uh, all right. Oh, yes. And the one last place that you can find us and find what we're doing, including all of our Patreon stuff or special events, uh, which would include last month's conversation with the director of Hudson Hawk, Michael Lehman. That can be found. You can track us down. Everything we're doing on our website, www.uncutgemspodcast.com. Now, on with the show. It's time to isolate ourselves and study the Andromeda strain. Did you see that? I saw it. You didn't change the lighting. I didn't touch it. Looks alive. Yes. It's bigger than two microns. Which means the infection is spread by a mere fraction of the green. I'm bringing down cameras. Let's have the other micro scanner. Stone level control. I need a MIC-T. Roger. Jump it up to 1,500. Microscan doesn't go any higher. We can get 1,500 light magnification and microchemistry. I'll send the rock through. Attention, CLTs on levels four and five. Main computer shows capacity versus access time at 10 to the 12th bit. For any change in memory configuration, CLTs must check their Unicom off. The Andromeda Strain was directed and produced by one Robert Wise. Screenplay was written by a frequent Robert Wise partner, Nelson Gidding. Um, He also wrote I Want to Live, The Hindenburg, The Haunting. Those are also Robert Wise productions, so they're often in cahoots. This is the connection that we have here, of course, to Michael Crichton, is that this Robert Wise film, this Nelson Gidding script, is based on Michael Crichton's book of the same name, The Andromeda Strain. It stars Arthur Hill, David Wayne, James Olsen, and Kate Reed. There's a few other people in there, but there are four principals. And the story of The Andromeda Strain, um, and actually as it starts off in the films, and this may go great length in sort of explaining the what the film is about. So I'll just sort of read the opening card that basically opens up with the beginning frame of the Andromeda strain. It reads, 
basically first frame of the movie. Acknowledgements, this film concerns the four-day history of a major American scientific crisis. We received the generous help of many people attached to Project Scoop at Vandenberg Air Force Base and the Wildlife Laboratory in Flat Rock, Nevada. They encouraged us to tell the story accurately and in detail. The documents presented here are soon to be made public. They do not in any way jeopardize the national security. And of course, this is all bogus because it's based on a 1969 Michael Crichton book. Um, so what this scientific crisis is, it involves a satellite that crashes to Earth in Piedmont, a small isolated New Mexico village. The military goes in to survey the damage and maybe find the satellite to retrieve it, but they learn that everyone in town appears to be dead. So authorities scramble a small group of four expert scientists for a top secret mission to retrieve and analyze the satellite and what happened in this town. And that's basically it. There's not really anything for subplots either. This is sort of directly what we're in for in this movie. The behind the scenes notes that I was able to sort of get from a little bit of research on this um, sort of are as follows. Michael Crichton, as I mentioned, his book was released in 1969, and that was the first book, I believe, that was released under his own name. He had uh, five books prior to that, and I think he used a couple different other pen names. One was John Lang, because at the time, we talked about Crichton a lot in the Westworld episode, he was an M.D., And he was concerned because he had this side hobby of writing books. He was concerned that his patients would not appreciate if their stories ended up in print. So he was writing under a pen name. So he wasn't writing under Michael Crichton, MD. So there's that. Nelson Gidding got a hold of this book fairly early on, read it, really liked it. And he took it to Robert Wise and said, hey, we should do this. But Wise wasn't convinced right off the bat, so Gidding eventually sold him on it based on the idea that this could have a documentary-styled realism. This could be sort of a verite type of project, and we can come at it from, from that angle. Then Wise got excited and was interested in it, so he asked Universal to get behind the project. So Universal went out. They bought the film rights for $250,000, which is pretty high price, but The Andromeda Strain was a fairly popular book. It was a bestseller. And I think it's the film, sorry, it's the book where Michael Crichton sort of arrived uh, as a noted author um, because it was a really well-received book. So getting one off to adapt it into a screenplay. As part of that process, he changed one of the characters, one of the scientists from a a male to a female, which wasn't a choice that Wise was originally interested in because he thought, well, to do this, the studio or maybe even Gidding was thinking of getting a Raquel Welch or, you know, some bombshell Mm -hmm. in there. And that would sort of betray the realism of it. Um, But Wise had some buddies in the science community and he said, well, you know, would this would this fit to make one of these characters a woman? And they said, oh, yeah, by all means. Um, so Kate Reed was cast in this role and she was a, an actress that, you know, was sort of well known in the acting community, but wasn't a big name. So there was an appeal in, uh, in hiring her for, for that role. Uh, the film did have a rather big budget at the time. It was a six and a half million dollar budget, um, a huge chunk of the budget, some $400,000 or so was, went into Um, creating this 70-foot-tall cylindrical chamber, uh, which was built for sort of the the climax scene. We'll get into that. And this 
big, big, big chamber was built in one of the one of Hollywood's largest sound stages, and they actually had to dig into the floor and the ground and go down several feet in order to accommodate this huge shaft. And then it took six months to build, and it was enormous, apparently. Shaft. Um, <laughs> we're, we're still doing it. Uh, one of the team that worked on the special effects for 2001, his name is Douglas Trumbull. He was a young dude. He was hired as an FX guru, and he was sort of a, a big uh, a big deal in terms of making some of the special effects, some of the uh, video effects that we see of, which are to simulate uh, microscopic video. He designed those. He simulated holograms. There's no CGI in here, but some of the work that we see looks like it might have been so he was developing these different light techniques to um, make a hologram 3d model of uh, this lab so there's some very innovative stuff here um, but Trumbull he was sort of a young and naive hard-working guy and it was his company that the studio ended up hiring so he quoted the job as this should take two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but he way underestimated how much the effects would actually cost. So his his effects house took a little bit of a loss because he didn't know how to budget for the types of things they were asking for at the outset. So anyway, um, another effects guy that was involved here was Albert Whitlock, who was one of the key guys on The Birds, for instance. So there's that. Um, Wise insisted on getting good actors, but non-stars. So um, I mentioned Kate Reed. So he wanted a whole cast of strong actors, but not really anyone who would be known. So when Michael Crichton, he was talking to Michael Crichton, sort of in the development phase, and he said, Michael, this is going to be great. No one's in it. <laughs> Crichton didn't really know what he meant, but he said, like, no one's going to recognize anyone. It's going to be great. And a couple little neat trivia nuggets here. Um, this was Michael Crichton's first experience around a film production. So the first time he arrives on the set, the studio assigns someone to give him a tour of the lot and a, a tour of the work that they're doing. And his tour guide was none other than young Steven Spielberg, who showed him around, which is neat because mm -hmm. they, of course, will join forces in the 90s with Jurassic Park. Um, Crichton asked Robert Wise if he could be in the film just because, I guess. And Wise was more than happy to accommodate. So Crichton's only cameo is in this film. He's in the surgery scene where Dr. Hall is called to duty. Um, but they had to do the blocking so that Crichton was sitting because Michael Crichton apparently is six foot nine or was <laughs> six foot nine. He's just a towering man. So they didn't want him to have too dominating a presence. So he's sitting in the background in this scene. So the film was Could released. You this large guy in the background just yeah. What? Actually, looks fairly natural in Scrubs. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I'm just imagining if he did stand, then maybe like the top of his head's cut off, almost like it'd be a naked gun type of joke. You know, you see him through the window, but you just see his nose down or something. Uh, anyway, the film comes out. Comes out in March of '71. Andromeda Strain made twelve and a half million dollars, so it, it did pretty well um it was in the top 20 films released that year in terms of uh revenue generally though it came up with mixed reviews there were a lot of critics that liked its dedication to the book that liked its commitment to realism but other critics basically said it's too long it's too oh. slow so there's a lot of very generic type of comments which 
Laser are, criticism is what I what yes, I call it. like yeah, I, I tend to now. Be, meh. You right, so, specific? No. Like if There's you, stuff to do. Like if you go to the the Rotten Tomatoes uh, and Dramata Strain reviews, and you just look for the the, the dominant sound bites, even amongst the top critics, it just seems like late. Mostly they're they're lazy criticisms. Um, so I don't know. Th- there's that. So we'll get into that, and we'll sort of let everyone out there listening know what they should think of the Andromeda Strain. There you but go. Just wait. We'll be there in just a second. Um, the science community, though. They really liked this film and they got behind it and they said it's pretty authentic. It's pretty well done, all considered. And then in 2003, uh, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, they came out and called the Andromeda Strain as the most significant, scientifically accurate and prototypic of all films of the killer virus subgenre. So this has the stamp of approval from the Infectious Diseases Society of America. Jakob. Tell me, did you find the Andromeda strain infectious or were you just feeling isolated? (laughs) Well, spank my monkey if this isn't a gem. Um, No, I've I've seen this before. uh, So I really liked it when I saw it before and I liked it even more on this rewatch. It was actually quite a pleasure. And I looked forward to rewatching this for some reason. Uh, because it's it kind of taps into the type of cinema that I really like, which is I've I've been saying this on a few occasions now. I like movies about people who are good at what they're doing, uh, mm-hmm. and then and I like watching people watching competent people do their thing. <laughs> I like it, and this movie is in- entirely that. Just yes, <laughs> well, it's yeah, wholly committed to realism. And by the way, I just quickly checked. The book itself, the foreword starts starts with uh, this book recounts the five day history of a major American scientific <clears throat> crisis. So it's almost like a piece of speculative fiction that pretends to be a document mm-hmm. uh, of something that really happened. Like it's based on a true. It has a sort of based on a true story stamp, right? And so, do you have the book there in, in front of you in some fashion? Is there, because my understanding is Gidding was really impressed with reading this book because there were all these references in the back and the references are all bullshit. They're all made up, but it's presented as if there's, you know, some legitimacy to the history of this. Uh, I see, because I have a PDF in front of me. Okay. Um, it doesn't have r- references. But it has, you know, it's it looks like it's written uh, sort of like well, not necessarily. The, this would this would be this wouldn't be the best approximation, but it would be like a prototype of I don't know if you've ever read World War Z or Robopocalypse. Mm-hmm. It's like a found footage book where it's like a like what you like World War Z is like what you're reading is a fake UN report, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, like one of the Twin Peaks books from Frost, the history of Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of yeah. like a fake book that pretends to be a real account of something, right? Uh, and it's kind of written in this sort of matter-of-fact way, uh, <laughs> as though it was written by someone who's trying to report on this on the findings of what happened in this sort of crisis to some kind of a body, right? Uh, while at this, but then again, by the fact that, but. I'm saying this is a prototype of that writing because 
it still is very much a novel, as in like there's dialogue and you know, mm-hmm. so so there's the the artifice of, of of that is only partial, right? But yeah, coming back to this, I actually I quite enjoyed it because I think this movie is essentially more or less scoreless. So what you do is just watch people procedurally following protocols, <clears throat> uh, and it's wholly engrossing, compelling. And insanely magnetizing. Like, it's just two hours and ten minutes, and you don't even feel it. Um, so I have I have massive fun watching this movie. Uh, there's, there's realism, the verite aspect of how science is done. Yes, it's very much present, although in the sort of the science fiction concept of, like, I'm going to press a button and I'm going to perform some kind of a scan that usually takes, I don't know, a few days to develop. And so there, there are shortcuts these people would take right mm-hmm. in this sort of portrayal of how science is done <clears throat> but but their intentions are pure as a, as in like the, the movie's intention is to try not to cut corners whenever they possibly can uh and then show the sus- and then make the suspense come out organically from from the story at hand uh, at hand and then from the findings that these people kind of just uh extract from uh, from how they how they follow how they follow procedure and then try to answer questions, right? So it's this sort of it it is this science fact, not science fiction, as you as you put it in the in sort of the Westworld episode, right? But then, um, mm-hmm. but I find this fascinating. This movie kind of rocks for me. It's very <clears throat> it's very entertaining. As it's flaws because i think my uh my one of my notes that really just bothers me is split diopters everywhere <laughs> this is a split diopter galore <laughs> um I, I don't know if this is right but i saw somewhere it might have been in imdb trivia or something that said there were 149 split diopters it kind of feels like there's a lot it it, it feels like there's a ton i don't know if that could possibly there are be short reverse shot i mean i'm just saying like we watched i think the underneath and there are these short reverse short sequences in there that are just like split diopters for no good reason. Right. And I'm just thinking like, oh, did he just rip off Robert Wise? Because uh, he seems like he's discovered split diopters and he's just like, I'm going to do ev- everything that I ever do is going to have a split diopter from now on. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> well, that it, was it, part it, of it. Like, he did yeah. that by design because he felt that... Um, you know, if you play with the the, the depth of field in, in, in that way, then you get a little bit more of a documentary, a little bit more of a realist uh, type of look. So that that was sort All of right. employed. So it's not this, like you watched like purpose. an early De Palma film and then you was and like, got excited. I, really like I don't this think look. so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I really like this movie. It's a fantastic piece of science fiction that really pr- plays uh, emphasis on the word science as opposed to fiction, and then pretends with astonishing effect that an outlandish sort of concept of, I don't know, an alien uh, species landing on Earth should could be treated seriously and then explored in a way that could actually happen. I, fascin- I find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a wonderful little movie that I almost, I don't believe in, it came out of a, 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 out of a guy who did The Sound of Music. And the West Side Story. And if you don't know anything about me, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not a big fan of either of those. <laughs> and one of them I actively hate. You figure, you figure out which one. 
So that's me. <laughs> All right. For me, you know what? I feel almost identical to you. Like I got to say, I found this film riveting. And uh, before getting into watching, you know, a few of these Michael Crichton films from the seventies. Like I, I feel that Robert Wise and Michael Crichton, although gentlemen I've been familiar with for a long time, sort of, I have these blind spots for them and, and I am really happy to start, you know, going through some of Michael Crichton's films. And I now want to pick up a couple of his books and uh, you know, delve into those fascinating. I think that he's got an interesting voice and interesting ideas as a writer and Robert Wise I never saw The Haunting, so I never really think of that. I think of The Day the Earth Stood Still, which I'm pretty sure is him, and then the the two musicals that you mentioned. And you know what? I'm really interested in checking out more Robert Wise films. I really want to see... You're going to find out that there's a lot of different stuff that he's made and kind of looks like it's an outlier. Um, But I don't know. I'm starting to get the impression, and I think you were talking about this in the Westworld episode, where there are these guys in Hollywood. It may have been sort of coming out of the the Quentin Tarantino discussion. There's guys in Hollywood that they've got the vision, and there's other guys that have just been around forever, and they're just really good. And I wonder if Robert Wise is one of those guys. because one of the old masters. Yeah, that he probably just grew and got better, and he sort of evolved as cinema evolved. You know, as soon as the the Hayes Code, the shackles of the Hayes Code went away, that freed him up to try new things, and and you know he just he turned out to be really good at it. So, like the Hindenburg is one that's been on my list for a while because of the George C. Scott thing, but mm-hmm. um, but I'm doubly interested in tracking that down now. He, uh, he had uh, been around for so long that he edited Citizen Kane. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> He's he's that guy. <laughs> so anyway, but enough about those guys. This film, yeah, I I love the approach of this film. I also, when I was watching this, I, I remember I was thinking actively of the very comment that you made a couple moments ago and you made, um, forget what we were talking about, but a few weeks ago you commented about, you know, it can be really fun to watch people who are just very professional and Michael are Mann. really good at, do- yes, that's what it was. Um, at heat doing it's watching someone do something that they're good at can be very very interesting to watch and yes that it was it was talking about heat and that's i did think that while i was watching this 100% right this is mm-hmm. riveting and i really 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 like this movie and i really like the suspense that's generated in here i think that this is a very tightly wound tense ride and this was really 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 enjoyable uh to watch um but as i mentioned one of the big complaints and i think i know where both of us stand on it but one of the big complaints is that this is slow this is sort of boring um why don't we collectively try to debunk that what are your thoughts on this complaint total fucking bullshit get real that's what i think about it fantastic assholes a lot of them (laughs) They wouldn't like uh, this is the type of lazy criticism uh or maybe this is something this is coming from people who i don't know didn't didn't quite know what they were getting because i feel this movie is quite a bit ahead of its time in that's this, my, next, in this that's my next talking point but yes <laughs> so uh, in this regard i mean i don't know if you want to weave them into into one but i feel like one of the reasons why people didn't get it and then and then just felt, felt it's, it was slow is it was because it was a type of science fiction that didn't quite exist at the time yet right mm-hmm. this is a very slow moving slow burning science fiction that takes itself insanely seriously 
Right. And then in 1971 or in 1970, so at the precipice of the 70s, I think science fiction, like this, we talked about this like last week, but science fiction wasn't taking itself that way. Like it was still a bit goofy. And like if you signed up to watching a science fiction film, you kind of just adjusted your expectations that you will be watching cardboard sets and people in tinfoil uniforms chasing it, around plastic aliens, right? It, it was or, spacey or it was an allegory for communists. Yeah, or both, yeah. right? Or both, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it would somehow involve Charlton Heston, uh, you know, like making these stunning revelations like you blew it all to hell or like they're eating people or something like, you know. There's like, it's a cockbuck, it's a cockbuck. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's it's kind of how people approach science fiction it was supposed to be uh, separated from you by the sort of veil of um like the sort of the safety net of of genre meanwhile mm-hmm. you're putting this movie puts the science fiction <clears throat> conceit into real world ra- sort of uh surroundings and it slows everything down because obviously you don't have warp speed like the science fiction science fiction element is the fact that there is this sort of object flying into into earth's Earth's atmosphere and you don't know what it is it's an it's an essentially an alien invasion movie without the alien invasion or you know Mm -hmm. like served in a way that people wouldn't possibly imagine would happen but if it were to happen this is exactly how it would happen yeah so I feel like people were like people who said like this is slow, this is boring. These these are critics who are good at being critics. So what they do is describe what they what they feel and describe what they see without necessarily thinking for a second what they whether what they see means something else other than what's on face value, which is. I call just lazy criticism. I hate that kind of criticism. This is stacking adjectives. I fucking hate it, hate it, hate it. So if if you're doing that kind of criticism, like this is to all you people out there, like if like this is the type of review that if I type in into chat G, in, into AI content detector, it will probably come come out at twenty percent human because this is just uninspired <laughs> yeah. piece of writing that that you will be replaced is, is what i'm saying <laughs> yeah you're you're sort of touching on the piece that i would sort of add to this this topic talking point it's something i think about a little bit and you know the the it sort of started with me like when i started doing reviews with letterbox you know six or seven years ago and then when i sort of joined forces with you in the show and did a little bit of writing and having these conversations i, I think about this type of thing and the whole idea of criticism is like sometimes i'll make notes like a like a, just my response to a movie and it will include those types of, this is boring. I didn't like this. Um, but I think that there's an important piece here to take away. That's not a fair criticism. That's sort Are of going to be replaced. That's a <laughs> criticism of me. <laughs> but what that is, is that sort of the viewer brings their own baggage into it. So if you didn't like it because you were distracted or you were bored, you found it bored or you didn't understand it or whatever, that's sort of on the viewer. So sometimes I take this view and what I like that we do here is that we give every film a shot and we try to say, well, no, this is my take on it and this is why. And like we, we try to sort of delve into that. And when I hear, it's a slow, this is boring. This is an impatience with this film because it's it's out of genre. It's out of sync from expectations. Mm-hmm. And like you just said, you know, people aren't 
willing to sort of slow that down or go back and give it a second second viewing to try to get at what what is Crichton saying in the book what is given mm-hmm. getting at with the script and wise with you know the style that's attached to it so um those types of complaints yeah I'm, I'm with you i don't like to read those especially like if i'm actively trying to dig into a movie uh you know i care what people's responses are to it but mm-hmm. i don't really care but because like you say they can if that's all you say about the movie it is sort of lazy anyway but if, if you tell me oh this is slow this is boring that's great that's a that's for me this is a start of a review Tell me why. Yeah. What? What? Why do you think it's boring? What makes it slow? And I, I feel like a lot of critics will then just refuse to commit to it. They will just. They will just. This is slow because it's it's um, it's protracted and it's um, it's languid. So they will just like substitute with other with other adjectives and they'll <laughs> right. call it other a day. synonyms. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, like, tell me why. But then I think they'll they'll be actively afraid of digging, oh, I mean, either afraid or just unwilling to dig into a, a film that they don't enjoy. Uh, yeah. And maybe out of fear that they may actually find something that they would like, um, even though they've already made up their minds. Which I think if you've already made up your mind about something that you're, that you're trying to discuss, then you're already making a mistake anyway. Because I sometimes, and it happens to me on occasion, that I'll, I'll start a review that I write. I'll start with a date I watched and I'll and, and the star rating that I felt like this was. And I'll write and I'll real and I'll read what I've written and I'll realize this doesn't match the star rating I gave it mm-hmm. at all. Because I actively convinced myself either that I don't like it or I like it more. Right? Yeah. As I'm writing, I'm just actively just having a conversation in my head, which I don't know. This is just me being weird, I suppose. Because I don't know how to write reviews. All I do is just I just type in what I think. And it just right. comes out, right? And then I'll I'll read it and I'll realize, oh, some of it doesn't make sense, so I'll rewrite parts of it. But then mostly it's like I live in the world of first draft with small cosmetic changes. So like what you see when if you read my writing, you you're following my 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 train of thought more or less. <laughs> exactly. That's right? how so I roll too. And then my <laughs> my proofread is fixing comma splices. Exactly, <laughs> fixing commas. Uh, and realize, or or just realizing that like, I've been like, this sentence has been going on for a while. Yes, <laughs> I need to break this book down. <laughs> uh, perfect. All right. How is this ahead of its time? Because you alluded to it. So, and I agree totally. Um, I think that we have, and also cinema's changing around the you know the late sixties and the early seventies. And what's Andromeda Stream? What did they say? Seventy one, right? Seventy one. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Cinema is changing. Storytelling is changing. The social climate is changing. There's all kinds of things changing. Um, so how is this ahead of its time? Oh, I mean, it's ahead of its time in the in the, in a way that it deals. It's a genre film. It's a science fiction film that doesn't necessarily that, that completely negates uh, the sort of the requirements of the genre. <clears throat> Like it almost just like puts them to one side and says like we're on like I'm not even interested in following any of this. What we're going to do is we're going to follow the st- source material and let the story tell itself. And what the story does is it's not even acknowledging that it's a piece of science fiction. It's a piece of speculative fiction. I, I mean, maybe at the time this was new. As in like, here's an idea for a book that pretends it's a real document or and it treats itself completely seriously so that you you could you could feel for a <clears> second, even though even though you know you, you, you picked up a novel in the bookstore, that you somehow got this document in your hands that you that shouldn't be there. Like you're reading something classified, right? 
so I feel this is how it's ahead of its time because the times of that kind of genre of filmmaking and, and storytelling in general came way later than this, I feel. Mm. And maybe this is a maybe this is a weird a weird in that in early seventies was a, was a time of um when okay, late sixties I think people in Hollywood they started realizing that young people don't want to watch Hollywood films. You were just like they weren't interested in watching Oliver or Right. Sound of Music or I don't know Ben Hur like no one cared right, right. about sandal epics and mu- and musicals even though like studios insisted for a very long time remember Oliver Oliver won uh, Best Picture in the year where Rosemary's Baby in in two thousand one the Space Odyssey were also also out just remember that right and Oliver is dog shit <laughs> just just. <laughs> Unfiltered, you saying? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna adopt this. How do you really feel, though? <laughs> How do you really feel about it, though? Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, it's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, in late '60s was the sort of the change happened where like people clued in that we can we can watch these movies made by people who are who are clearly anti-establishment, mm-hmm. right? Who are making these sort of counterculture movies that clearly uh went against the grain and for me what's fascinating about this film is this this film looks like a movie that's a kind of trying to cut against the grain of um of what's established as science fiction as in like this is an alien invasion movie this is not you know like uh, little men from Mars. This is not the Earth today. The day the Earth stood still. The day the Earth stood still. The yep. day the Earth stood still. Right, which is a canonical canonical piece of flying saucers, big robots. Yep. None of this is here. This is an alien invasion film with a piece of rock with something green on it. Right. Yeah. That's yep. that's all this is, and and you feel like okay, this is something that never happened before. And then the fun part is, it's directed and co- uh, and helmed by a guy who had been in Hollywood for decades. He's the uh, he's who the did old, the day the, the earth stood still. He's the established establishment. Right? He's the yeah. he's the earth stood stood still guy, right? Yeah. So I find this fascinating that there's there's a guy who's already I want I want to say on his way out who still could get attracted to material this fresh and this innovative and and then put it together in a way that doesn't really like he had the foresight and uh, the discipline not to apply his shtick yep to it yeah and then just re- almost reinvent the genre just by way of n- just not doing his thing <laughs> yeah no way. um yeah hundred percent agree I, w- I would add to this and this is a comment I made when we were talking about Westworld and it's, it's coming from uh the inspiration for this, which is Crichton's book. Crichton is a guy who walks into storytelling from a different place from other writers and other storytellers. He's a guy who walks out of, you know, a surgical unit, who walks out of medical training. Like he's got an MD and, you know, he's a professor at Columbia, I think somewhere around this time. Like he's, he's a guy immersed in an academic field. So he stares at these things that are happening at sort of the cutting edge of science and the sort of the, the forward edge of, you know, society's progress. So he's got this 
behind the scenes look at where society and science and all these things are going. And it's not a perspective that most people have, you know, like I, I don't have this, this perspective. So, and most writers don't. So what you, you get a lot of science fiction and horror for that matter, which emulates the society's conversations at the time, you know, whether it's environmentalism or, uh, you know, corporate bad guys or distrust in the government or Vietnam or whatever. So it's, it's a very outward look, but he's, he's finding these stories, almost these, these what if scenarios from the things that are making the scientific minds of the day, uh, you know, click, you know, Mm -hmm. the things that are interesting them. And then he's applying these, storytelling tropes and narratives to a point to it so he's got this really interesting uh, perspective and i find that he's uh, one of these very very influential guys in a way that i never really gave it much thought before i started delving into to some of these things like i i find Crichton a fascinating guy because usually if you're a doctor you don't turn around and also you know write movies and then Mm -hmm. sorry write books and then just for kicks a year or two later, direct movies for a studio. It's just sort of this weird perspective and dynamic that, that he brings Mm -hmm. into it. And I think he wanted to be a writer all all his life. I think he's just like the medical profession is something that he gravitated to because this was the reasonable thing to do. And also I think he was just a high flying achiever who just could not, not do things. (laughs) Yeah. But like my point, my point, very unique, resume and perspective that that this guy uh brings into you know telling a story so anyway so that's there and then i think it takes time for stories like this to take hold and maybe because it's a book maybe you can be inventive and play around with form a little bit more as a writer i I don't Mm -hmm. know uh, compared to a filmmaker. There's probably some truth in that. So it takes a while for the Crichton type of story, this uh, what if science problem type of story to, to take hold, but then it's, it becomes popularized. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's really ripe for the picking in the, in the nineties because, you know, like mm-hmm. it, because of his influence with Andromeda strain and Westworld and, you know, these, these types of things. So anyway, that's the piece that I would add to that. I just, I just, sphere? I just find this whole sphere. When did he write Sphere? That oh, was a I think later book 90s. as well, right? I yeah. think it's it's written in the nineties or maybe in the eight. No, no, sorry, he re- he wrote it in the eighties. Okay. Um, in um, just, I think it's be- he wrote it between Congo and Jurassic Park. Okay, but th- this is why I think like like he's ahead of his time just because of this unique perspective, and then he he gets a couple hits, and then he ends up making a couple of movies. But his his work is ahead of its time, which is why they're only modest they're modest hits, and maybe they're they're striking you know critics and audiences is so unusual because, like you say, it's it's out of genre because this is a grounded science. It's not you know flying saucers and you know alien invasions. It's it's you know this it's gro- it's grounded in a scientific uh concept of the day mm-hmm. um and that's something that ends up being employed to great effect here this idea of delving into the science and what would this lab really look like and you know the the different decontamination things that they go through this is all very authentically treated what is your your take on some of the different uh examinations of scientific procedure that we see in here how does this make it believable or engaging for viewers 
I mean, this kind of ties into what you were just saying, right? Because I think the book he wrote, I think the genre, this food, like he said, oh, it's out of genre. It is out of genre, but it's such an early example of something that later crystallizes into a genre. And I think this is kind of referred to as a techno thriller, mm-hmm. as in a, a thriller with a uh, yeah technology being being a, an, in a, a part of it, right? You know, like how you have psycho thrillers and whatever. So I think. There were books like I think Alistair McLean wrote a few books that were kind of just in the same vein, but I think he was one of the first guys to kind of just do it. So at the time when he was making these, telling these sort of stories, early stories at least, in like late sixties, early seventies, he was essentially a pioneering this genre, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think the idea of the what if question is so. I mean, I'm gonna tie this into into your question in a second just because I, I think this is sort of the context I kind of need for just just for, for, for my shit to make sense the what if question so the, I, the this is something that wasn't really done before right as in like if you wanted to write a science fiction book you do it like I don't know like um, let's just say uh, like George Orwell or um, Ray Rad- Bradbury or Robert Heinlein where you imagine a world where okay well what you know the what if question was kind of just globally applied uh, what if the, there was a world where books were banned right what if there was a world where um, uh, America was a, a world was a fascist state and it was invading mm-hmm. other planets right like this like these sort of these concepts are global they are very sort of yeah. grand and oh, overwhelming meanwhile he starts with these small what if questions which um someone like stephen king also operates with as in like what if you're what if you were stranded in a car and and there was this massive dog outside and you couldn't get out right right and then the world outside it like it's it's happening in a normal world but this world is kind of adjusted to your what if question like what if what if my neighbor was a vampire that's salem's lot right yeah or uh you know like what if what if that that quiet kid uh with a religious mother what if what if, what if what if she had like telekinetic abilities and she <laughs> and yeah, like that's and then how would that impact on the actual world so i think he starts <laughs> with a similar what if question like what if there was a sort of the uh an like a piece of rock with a with an alien virus of unknown origin landed on earth how how would that change the world? And then the implications is, how would we respond to this in a way that we with, without inventing shit? So as with the means that we have at our disposal, with our scientific understanding, and this is kind of how it flies, just weaves into the question that you ask, because for for the most part, what you're watching is, uh, I think this is the most fascinating thing I found in this movie on this watch. Apologies for rambling. But the so the no. depictions of science are hundred percent passive, right? All you see is people either undergoing tests because they need to uh, the uh, you know they have to remove all the bacteria from their from their bodies, which is a gross piece of body horror. <laughs> this so, you know like so, so that's half of the film is them preparing to do to do things and then them analyzing and trying to understand how this thing operates but the the kick is everything they do bears absolutely no 
no that has no relation to how this movie resolves, right? All they do is observe and trying to understand, and they they treat this as a puzzle because it's presented as a puzzle. Like there yeah. are these, there's this guy who gets retrieved from because like we have to kind of mention, I think, this thing kind of just drops from the sky in this town, wipes out a town because like these people drop dead on the spot. Apart from one guy who gets picked up and and one baby who seem like nothing happens to them and they 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 surmise that okay well there's that these these two survivors they may hold the answers to what's going on and they may help us understand what this thing is and what it does to us right because it turns people's blood into powder um and uh and all they do is just make these analyses right they mm-hmm. just uh, they see whether this is airborne by just passing it through and then they see how what the particle size of it is by passing it through different size filters to see whether they actually kill a rat or not right uh, they see whether a dead body of a rat can still uh, infect another rat and all they do is just passively try to understand their passengers in the yep. story right yep and then this is kind of how, like, this is because, you know, like science fiction films would kind of lead you to believe, like, the scientist will just come up with an answer. They'll just concoct an antidote and go, like, look, I found it. We've got the antidote. It's a cockpuck. <laughs> you know, this will be the Twilight Zone. Yes. Sort, of, sort of this 1960s sort of thing will be like, there, there'll be a guy holding a tester with something green in it. And then, like, drink this and everything's going to be fine. We'll give it to everyone. And then, meanwhile, all they do is say, like, oh, look, this thing has changed on its own. And now we're fine. And we just understand what it did. Thank you. That's what science is. Or we're under- we understood the natural world around us. Well done. Yay us. <laughs> Let's write a paper. Right? Yeah. yeah, like, for me, I find this absolutely riveting because as you say we're sort of following along here um and the exposition is just right because we don't get big convoluted explanations everything seems to make sense the visuals match so these you know it isn't just people sort of mixing stuff in beakers there are some very engaging visuals here like we are uh we are dealing with uh, a, a baby and a a man and they're left in this room and how did this baby not roll off the bed by the way (laughs) i was wondering that too um (laughs) because the baby looked like it would be on the anxiety because there are no bound there's no no bonding around this bed and it's just this this baby's gonna roll over (laughs) because the baby looks like it'd be the age where it could start rolling or would be rolling anyway um but yeah they just sort of left the baby on on this table and it will take probably a good few seconds for the lady in there uh, to kind of just walk into this human-sized condom, this accordion, this accordion <laughs> suit. That's it's accordion just, condom. It's, it's great, but see, so these visuals are very rich and alive. Um, so they're like it's a very stimulating film visually because I've got a ton of stuff here I never see. Nothing here feels cliched. It's all interesting. We're also dealing with rats and monkeys. We'll talk about that in a second. But these accordion suits which they make total sense. They're there for sterilization and someone can just sort of walk into this suit from one room and be, you know, enclosed and sterile in this other room and have to engage in these experiments. But it's all, Mm -hmm. it's all very tactile. 
it doesn't feel overbearing. And I think it goes to maybe what you were uh, saying, It like with the Stephen King example, is that these what ifs exist in our world. Now, most of us don't live in this uh, science world, but this feels very grounded and mm-hmm. real. And these feel like real people. We don't get this, the 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 big performance. We don't get the Hollywood performance. I think that there's a concerted effort here to work with these actors to <laughs> you, make you them feel realistic. It somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. God but, damn it! You I know told what? you to to use the left phalange. <laughs> so if you have something like that and then you have you know this this gorgeous bombshell Raquel Welch is is in there you know it suddenly it it loses and she's like the world class microbiologist by the way like Raquel Welch is a world class microbiologist like she she's not even the age to have a PhD at this time exactly like so um so anyway like this the, woman's the, old and then tired <laughs> the choices are made Very by by Robert Wise very early on into what kind of film this is going to be. And I can't help but feel that a lot of this comes from uh, the influence of 2001 because mm-hmm. that film has, even though it's it's the space film because you know the 1960s were about space exploration and landing on the moon. So that's part of the public conversation around the world. So it makes sense that a lot of space films sort of pop up and that's sort of our go-to for science fiction. But 2001 stands out because it's so grounded because this science looks like it's it, it could work. And it's, you know, very authentic and very, very carefully, meticulously thought through and presented. So I, I feel that the Andromeda strain owes quite a bit to Stanley Kubrick's film mm-hmm. from just a couple years before, um, you know, in, including Trumbull, who's on the effects crew for both movies. What are your thoughts on this connection? Oh, um, I mean, it makes total sense because it, I was just thinking to myself, like, there's, you know, like, I'm pretty sure, like, the accordion suit doesn't exist. Like, in real life, I don't think people use the accordion suit when they're dealing with contagious patients, right? Because this condom just looks a little bit ridiculous, but you buy into it. Like, mm-hmm. as in, like, these sort of, um, like, I'm pretty sure that the mechanism to, to check for particle size uh of this virus that they think it is a virus right um or whatever it is just we need to see what it because they know it's airborne so they need to see how big it is and that it, what kind of size did we talk about i'm pretty sure like the filters they're using they're just props made made for a movie right this is not a piece of equipment they pulled out of a lab because it mm-hmm. looks like a movie prop but it looks like a movie prop in the context of a film that takes itself extremely seriously. So you all you immediately just assume that this is real. So you, yeah. you lend it the sort of um, the trust that they're not telling you porkies, even though you like because they explain it away. They say, "Oh, have you worked in this?" Uh, like I don't know what it is. It's like it's like a glove box bar for a human, but for a human being, and you realize, oh, maybe this is what it is. As in, like, this is a government lab with unlimited funding. So, because they build a silo un- under mm-hmm. a farm in the middle of nowhere in Nevada or yeah. wherever, where they look like they're growing cannabis, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right? But underneath, they have the silo with an atom bomb at the uh, at, at the bottom of it. By the way, right? Just in mm-hmm. the uh, uh, just just in case something would happen, right? So you could see like, oh, maybe if we had unlimited funding and not a lot of time or imagination, this is how we would say like, oh, we need to treat patients somehow. So I know how to treat samples in a way that's completely sterile. I use a glove box. So how about we just make a massive glove box where instead yeah. of a hand, 
you put a person in the, in the bodysuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I feel the, this is where this connection is, right? Like, because you feel like this is still very much a science fiction film in this regard, in the portrayal of equipment and science. And, and then, you know, like there are still these like silver corridors everywhere and they have these substations and then weird keys. It kind of yeah. looks like a 1960s film, but you don't really mind because this, right. The realism, realism is sold through the seriousness of, of the matter and the seriousness of the principles in there. So I, I feel think, that's kind of how it works for me. I think there's a great deal of props, pun intended, that needs needs to go to the effects team here because mm-hmm. I think their job isn't just to create these items that will be sort of functional for shooting, but I think these items need to look a certain way that can communicate to the audience enough so that they get what's going on visually so that the audience can feel a little bit smarter about these scientific concepts, which most people wouldn't really understand, right? So it needs to communicate to me, the non-science dummy, enough to make me understand what's going on. And I, I think that they do a really good job of that. The filter is an excellent example because it, it just, it seems to change these filters and it looks, you it know, needs to look like something that would do the job that they describe. Precisely. Yeah. 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 Perfect. And, and so it, there's, and, and, and also too, like, because I think at the time you, what you couldn't, one thing you couldn't do was you couldn't take video through a microscope. Mm-hmm. So they wanted, they had to create this, this effect where you have video that's recording something on a microscopic level. So you have to make that convincing and sort of the, um, the, the make the way that they make this, mesh that's part of the satellite and we see we zoom in and we see this little uh splotch this organism that is looks like an amoeba or something well really it looks like green paint because that's what it is yeah, it looks like snot right yeah <laughs> yeah Just neon snot green, green paint what it is. um but what what they do is they they created the these really cool props that look like some sort of mesh that you're zoomed in on but it's copper pipe and it looks really good and it they need to be able to sell it on a level that doesn't look like maybe some of the uh, star trek effects for instance just Mm -hmm. taking something slightly cheesier from the era this really needs to hold up under a microscope another pun intended and and it really does so anyway like the the effects here really i think sell me a science dummy uh, on what's going on and help me understand visually. So I, I think that, that that team really is dialed in to where the audience would be and what they need to communicate it. Because my understanding is Wise just said, go make this shit. And mm-hmm. the prop department came back with these effects and these props. Yeah, I, I, I told, totally on board with this. I think this is kind of where the genius of uh, Trumbull and his, and his folks comes into play because they really show you these outlandish props that and sets that look like they are from a 1960s film they are they are from 2001 which inarguably is a science fiction film like it doesn't pretend is real right yeah there's spaceships in there it looks like you know but it kind of just it's smart enough not to kind of go on go on full-on forbidden planet where leslie nielsen is just like holding up what's yes. i don't know um <laughs> You, you see, this is something that's assembled from like, oh, there's a light bulb in there, there's a piece of plastic, and then and 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 a, and a piece of copper wire, and then he pretends this is a gun, right? Oh, mm-hmm. this is my f- 
face magnetizer. I'm going to magnetize your face. Pew, 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 you know, and then you have to kind of just <laughs> suspend your disbelief on this level. Meanwhile, all they do is just like, just concoct this sort of massively out, just outlandish prop. And they tell you, oh, it's a, it's a particle filter or it's an electron microscope. And you know, it's not one. It's still a piece of plastic and metal. It has you know, like blinking lights, but it kind of looks like a piece of equipment you'd maybe find somewhere close to a lab mm-hmm. in the in the nineteen sixties. Like it looks like this big. It has this arm that moves very slowly. Yeah, like I know that. Like, you know they press these buttons. I mean, this is where the stupidity comes in there because like they press these, and you know that like they have like well. Clearly, this is invented for the purposes of the silo, so they they they're not trained to do this. So it would probably be like, and before we do this, we have to, you know, go through what all like these th- buttons are. Yeah, yeah, three weeks of of a, a user acceptance tests, testing, and, and training, right? Um, so, or maybe they periodically get trained. No, they don't because they, they they've never met each other, so they don't know. But yeah, there are these science fiction concepts that are smuggled in there, but you you almost don't mind mm. because the underlying conceit of um, there's this realistic event that's overtaking all this almost makes it makes it real. Make, make It makes the prop props real in the sets, the plasticky metal tinfoil covered sets, it makes them real. So I think this is the genius of this movie in a way. Yeah. And everything feeds into it too, including the very opening slide, which I, read it at the outset this this faking history as a as a narrative tool what what do you what do you think of um sort of the narrative and the, the style of the narrative in terms of you know faking this as a real event or the documentary type of style and storytelling i don't know whether this is one of the first examples of that but this is kind of almost predating this uh sort of the found footage sort of aesthetic of you know pretending that something something happened although like mm-hmm. in the 90s found footage would actually go a step further and just let's just make a whole fake movie right and then pretend it's real right or like spine this is spinal tap was probably the first one like let's make a mm-hmm. documentary about something completely fake right yeah uh so i don't know i want to i want to believe it's one of the first examples of that and i feel i feel this is a stroke of genius and however the stroke of genius comes back to michael Crichton, who actually just starts this book with it's like let's pretend this is real right yeah, to to the point from what I understand, like as I mentioned, the the fake references, because mm-hmm. Gidding, when he was reading the book and he was trying to draft the 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 screenplay, he would look up these references and he's like, "There's no such thing. This is all made up." <laughs> so a lot. So what he what he said he learned from Michael Crichton, who was a young man, and uh, Gidding was an older gentleman. What he learned from this young hotshot writer is that feel free to go make stuff up. So there's a lot of voiceover that you hear just announcements over the PA system in this big cavernous lab. And you hear these terms and these, these references to, you know, uh, you know, come to containment point, you know, I X said three, like he's making up these terms and these rules and it's just all garbage. None of it matches anything, um, you know. And you, some of it, you might have references or references to other things. I think, but it like, matches logically and other elements that he made up. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And, and it and it and it fits. Um, so 
yeah anyway i i really i really like this sort of conceit this sort of uh faux documentary in it and again i wonder if it was just easier to do that if you're a novelist to sort of experiment with the form um than it was to experiment with the form in cinema although cinema's going through a bit of a change you know um in, in a way it's interesting this this got made but i guess because it was a popular book they thought that universal thought well yeah okay let's let's give it a try see what we get i mean doing it like nowadays if you were to if if this book had languished for 50 years or 30 years and was made in the 90s this would have then been made uh as a bona fide found footage film as in like this would be a documentary that they make on Mm -hmm. on this alien thing that dropped to earth and they would use it you make it using commercial grade uh vhs cameras or Yes, TV cameras, or or maybe even in the early two thousands using camcorders, right? Mm-hmm. In nineteen sixty nine or seventy, when they were making it, all they had was a thirty five and sixteen millimeter cameras that make a lot of noise, and there's yes. a lot of post production that's involved because you have to reloop all the dialogue because like they just you, you you can't record sound on set. Yeah, right. So 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 doing this visually is impossible. So I think to answer your question, it's easier to do it in the novel form because you just like. All you all you have is a paper and a pencil and in an empty room of in your brain, right? Mm-hmm. So it's easier to kind of just in not in that easier, but it's technically easier to uh, innovate in the form, right? Right, and you know what? Probably because if you're writing a novel, there's only you writing the novel, so you don't really have to convince any producers or money men to buy into your idea yeah. that is way off of way off of the norm right so it's it's hard to be that innovator in the film medium probably mm. because you got to get a whole boatload of people on this on the same page as you and writing a book doesn't cost <coughs> money right yeah all it costs you is the, is the cost of paper and, and the amount of pencils you use that's, that's right that's the cheapest you get right but then i mean maybe you have to convince maybe the editor is 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 the person you have to convince that this is a good idea but then again, right um, you always change an editor <laughs> one thing though if this is a found footage movie one thing i would suggest that you don't get is the what i i would call amazing suspenseful opening where the satellite has crashed this has been reported and the military goes to retrieve it i i find that there's an, just a just a phenomenal a phenomenal uh suspenseful sequence in here and this you would not get if it's a found footage or if it's told through security cameras or whatever. Uh, what do you make of this Robert Wise opening, this this business of uh, finding the town where the satellite crashed and, and scoping it out? It, it makes it real, right? Mm-hmm. Because in a found footage film, we'll probably get... Uh, this will be the opening card, like just the title card of that's what happened, right? And here's the... Uh, like, you, you could you could tell a lot of I mean then in a, in a found footage film even like as as early like the ni- the early nineties and and early two thousands I suppose or the mid nineties I think it would be where Blair Witch Project was but you still have to suspend your disbelief and then assume that it's okay that the camera is there like there are these yeah. people running away from witches in the forest and and then they still feel compelled to point the camera at what they're looking at yeah. 
right? So, so there's the artifices in there, but that you don't mind just the same way you don't mind about the filter particle particulate filter looking stupid, like right. a prop, because the the whole thing kind of looks real, like the, everything else looks real. So I feel like that the opening is perfect in a way. It's just a graphic, just with the red dots like this is where it landed and then you you, you get filled in as in like you're, you're being briefed yep. on what happened um yeah well, i i love the whole sequence and even going past where they because you've got some military guys that are on the top of the hill too and they realize that oh we're gonna go in to retrieve that but wait i think i see bodies and so you yeah. get a little bit with these two guys that are Follow on the hill protocol. Y- yep exactly but what they do is, and this is this is just such a stroke of genius I find with this film, and I, I don't know if you know, in, like anyone really realized how well this was going to work, but it really does, is that you get small little glimpses of this threat. So these military mm-hmm. guys on the hill, they're checking it out through the binoculars. Oh my God, I think I see a body. Is that a body? Uh, and then they're reporting everything back to headquarters. So you've got all the all these scenes of reaction shots of these guys in HQ listening to the field reports coming in live off the radio from these guys mm-hmm. saying it looks like people are down. So then the guys in HQ are saying this could be a virus. This is contaminated. We need to send in the pros. So stand back. Um, maybe we can get some visual shots. So then they send in planes to do uh they scramble planes to do an overview and take some uh military photos just from the planes you get we the audience with them get a little bit more information and we get a little bit more discussion from the pilots as they radio in with their results but these pictures you can see that there are bodies everywhere it's not just one or two there are bodies everywhere so you get a very slow reveal as to what's happening until finally they actually send in the, the scientists, they scramble the scientists and then they send in the scientists to retrieve or locate, I guess, locate the satellite and they've got the hazmat suits and then you're finally on the ground. And this is after we find all the scientists. And so there's a, a tremendous amount of suspense that's building in here. And like I say, I don't know if anyone would have clued in that this is going to work as well as it does because we get these glimpses of something is going on in this town and there's a satellite and now we've got all this suspense at the administrative level where we're trying to get these scientists and why are we at this party and why are we at this surgery? And then we're finally back on the site in the hazmat suits and we, like, we're probably 15, 20 minutes in. I find this stuff riveting because mm-hmm. I've had the little tidbits that something's going on and it almost plays out like an animal attacks or a ghost story or something where the threat is constantly in the shadows. I know it's there because I see the remnants of it. Well, I get these little bits here and it's over like the first 15 minutes or something here. And it's just a tremendous setup. And this is one of the things that blows my mind about this film. It is so suspenseful and sucks me into wanting more. And then the film eventually just through its science, just slowly gives me a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but this opening 15 minutes or so is just absolutely uh, banger stuff that I'm just watching riveted. I don't Have know if you, you felt that. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Have you seen Failsafe by Sidney Lumet? No, no. That's kind of a similar. I'm just realizing that's kind of okay. a similar conceit of like making this sort of suspenseful genre film of you know like there's this sort of Cuban Missile Crisis type affair going on, mm-hmm. but it's 
kind of filmed using this sort of uncinematic ways of this is how it would probably happen as in like you look at people making phone calls mm-hmm. um and uh and you look at stock footage of uh, of planes and actually just these sort of graphics of where planes are and where submarines are and how the every, how the news is tightening just by you following the facts yeah I think this is the genius cool. of this film, right? In this way, that just like the facts are enough. Yeah, so it's, it's suspenseful enough as it is. Like you don't need the the big spectacle around this. Like you don't need need to have this sort of action sequence in the beginning where these soldiers barely make it out alive or whatever. Like no, it's just like, you're watching people follow orders. Yeah, and then just it's suspenseful enough. Thanks. <laughs> Like it's it's kind of like a, like you would watch do, there are these documentaries uh, I think what was it called like day zero last days there is this sort of, about these sort of near misses okay uh, where know you know there will be just like some general just thinking oh we're being attacked by the Ruskies right and it turns out now it's like a flock of seagulls or whatever and it pretends it's, it has a rocket signature or something like this on, on the radar and that's and that's the, where the thriller is. Yeah. By people watching, watching, watching graphics is enough. It and can watching, be, yeah. 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 And because essentially in, in half of this film is you watching screens and with numbers on them. It's just like this woman watching cultures and just, and, and thinks, oh, this, this may be an answer. Look, it grows when you do this and doesn't grow when you do that. Or where they look, they show you the sort of the pH sort of value chart and, it kind of looks fascinating because they're making they're making logical connections and they're kind of finding answers and you're like yeah you guys you know like 7.2 is where where it's at yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm i'm completely um blown away by this and uh, you know it's it's just it's fascinating because it's it's strictly based on the facts and it is it does sort of play out like a documentary where you don't need the big moment not really because it's these little reveals this connects to this and each one's fascinating and it continues as the film chugs along to be visually interesting um so anyway yeah this is great what do you think of the cast in here oh exactly how how robert wise explains it i don't recognize a single person apart from arthur hill who was in future world uh (laughs) later on right I I, I feel yeah. they kind of like you kind of need to have a bunch of nobodies in there mm-hmm. because if you had George Clooney, then you know, then this sort of the this suspension of disbelief uh, kind of just drifts away because you're not watching someone doing science; you're watching George Clooney pretending to do science. But meanwhile, when you're watching a different actor who we not necessarily recognize, then you realize, oh, maybe this isn't a scientist doing science. I mean, mm-hmm. it's still an actor just like George Clooney. It's just a face you don't rec- recognize, right? So I feel like the casting in here is fantastic. These people actually do a, a great job at um, like being these sort of egos um, underpinned by intellect. Mm-hmm. So I think they, yeah, they, they they sell it very well because they're just like, God damn it, I know my equipment. You know, like this isn't, this isn't like the Hollywood sort of science. They're, these people have these sort of uh, they they exchange barbs, but they're kind of they they look like they would be the type of barbs that scientists would exchange. 
yeah, it feels very uh, authentic. And and to be honest, because I don't know these actors really, except for Arthur Hill, and I really I think I just know him because of just seeing Future World as well. See? I don't really know these actors, so it does have almost that United 93 type of thing where these are just real people going about their going about their business and uh mm-hmm. like that's it's sort of a fascinating uh fascinating piece to me and i think it works really well and I, again like i think that this 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 film was sort of strategized from the get-go because in part of that choice so you know robert robert wise and you mentioned like he's coming from a different world of filmmaking right like he's one of the old one of the old pros and he's being very adaptive and flexible in in this mm-hmm. um so yeah that that piece works really well is do, do any of them stand out i don't know they're all doing everything right to stand out is probably to fail this film a little bit exactly although i would probably say they kind of do participate in this little drama at the end because i, I think at some point there's this breach and they uh, they contaminate the entire silo and this whole thing immediately starts a nuclear countdown and then, oh no, if we detonate the uh, atom bomb, this this thing's going to feed this virus because it eats radiation or whatever. But then again, it also turns out it's going to be inconsequential because it's mutated already and it doesn't really uh, affect humans anymore. Um, so the only thing, they, so their drama is essentially localized to their own survival, right? So they have to go and find a place to put a key in and then stop the clock right that's all this like that's the only element of actual hollywood drama in there i precisely i was just going to say the same thing like if, if there's anything in here that feels like it might be sensationalized and you know it's it's the countdown for uh setting off this nuclear bomb to sort of self-detonate this whole structure and hopefully bury the bury the the virus with it or the organism whatever it is um how are you with the ending though? Like, I think we both agree then it's sort of Hollywoodized a little bit. I wonder if it was in the original. I don't know. Like the original I book. I don't know either, but I would say, you know, it fits, especially because it's kind of like, like you're already, um, like, I, I don't know. It, it makes sense to me to in, introduce some kind of a drama, but the, the drama they introduce is believable and compelling. It's like, oh yeah, well, someone just tore through the thing, or I don't know, this virus that eats rubber, or it eats the polychron or whatever it is that they use, um, got out, and just, and then this is how you respond. You actually make logical conclusions, and you realize, well, we either should do something or we shouldn't do anything, right? Because they have this odd man hypothesis. They have this, and that's the real thing, right? Is it? I thought. I don't think it is. I thought it was just made up in... It well, might the, be in other novels. I mean, I wonder, like, this this sort of idea of, like, having someone who's uh, untethered to to anything, it, it makes sense. Like, at least in a military setting, it would probably make sense to me that there's, like, you, you, make, you make the most rational decision ever and then you have someone... Uh, someone who's who you know is going to be uh, unaffected by anything, make these decisions. I think it makes sense to me. Like logically, like if you explain this yeah. to me, I would say like, this is, this is something that you could probably find in a military setting somewhere. And, and this might be the genius of Michael Crichton. Uh, the odd man, the odd man <laughs> hypothesis is a fictional hypothesis that states that unmarried men are better able to execute the best, most dispassionate decisions in crises. 
So, yeah. uh, in the case of Andromeda, the Andromeda strain is to disarm the nuclear weapon intended to prevent the escape of organisms mm-hmm. from the lab. But it kind so. of blazes real, and I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. mind it. It's fictitious. Yeah, totally. And you know, in in terms of of the ending, um, I don't mind it at all. Like I could nitpick, and maybe you know that might be if I'm looking at this film just on a ledger with pros and cons. That you know, maybe it's a little bit too sensationalized, but it's not really that big a you know credit compared to all the debits in this. Like I think that this is uh, uh, you know something that I can I can totally. I can totally take this and it fits like in, in terms of like they they do talk it through in so far as well this virus has this impact on you know whatever the 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 plastics or the rubbers are so the seals start to go and you know like and it's also works in conjunction with um them figuring out the ph thing so you know like the the timing of this is sort of hollywoodized a bit too but i think it earns it I, I'm, I'm fine with this you know i, I did sort of wonder things are happening sort of quick at the end when they weren't all along. So there's one, one of the scientists is sort of shut in this room and they are trying to figure out what the deal is with the pH and the blood. So they get him to breathe a certain way to sort of influence his levels. And uh, there's, you know, that's going on. And then um, Kate Reed's character, Dr. Levitt, she has a, a an epilepsy uh, attack. Um, mm-hmm. She has a seizure. So like, all these the things are oddly small, happening. Some slowest blinking light. <laughs> yeah, true. So, you know, there's a bunch of moving parts, but I don't know. Like, and I feel I probably couldn't pick this, but I wasn't at the time. So I feel this film earns this by the, by the end, I guess is, is my take. I think the, as I said, like the conceit alone sells, just smuggles these science fiction concepts that in a 1967 planet of the apes or 68 i suppose um like in 1960s movies you'd probably find as like oh this is definitely fake you know right you kind of just get like you you just it's kind of like the medicine in a piece of chocolate that you give to to a child it's just like you smuggle it in (laughs) yeah uh True. Yeah. So I'm I'm down. Even the the lasers and everything because you got these laser turrets. Oh, lasers I, are going to make an appearance. <laughs> you know, and at the end of the day, this is the three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar you know mecha silo that they've that they've built, and it's like five stories tall or something. Uh, yeah. So they got to use it. Goodness, it took six months to build it. So you better get a good scene out of it, I suppose. Um, but if you sell realism, they have communication issues. There's this what I, who I called Sergeant Dingling. The phone, the phone oh, makes yeah. dingling. I make a note, <laughs> but, <laughs> but and but then you know, like again, on the back of it, like this is the sort of the reality of like you know, there will be an error of communication, there will be a sort of a breakdown somewhere. But then again, you have the science fiction conceit of like speaking to a pre- to the the president's chief of staff over 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 a TV screen. And then halfway through the conversation, another TV screen pops on with another guy joining the conversation as though he was hearing the whole thing anyway. <laughs> you know, oh, what the, What about 712? Did you execute? And it's just like someone else just chimes in like, no, we haven't. I'm just, <laughs> why were you not on scope? <laughs> it's like someone just logs onto a Zoom call and just like starts something like, how did you hear this? <laughs> Here's a bit of, the science in here that I think we got to get into is what do you think of the treatment of animals in this film? 
Oh, because this is something I had questions about this because I don't know. Like, did they actually kill animals for this? Uh, no, I, I I looked into this. So um, so for anyone listening, God love you for listening. If you haven't seen this, um, so there are a couple scenes in here where, um, in one instance, it's a rhesus monkey, and in another instance, it's a big white lab rat, um, but. They they appear to be exposed to some sort of a gas or something, and they their their muscles sort of spasm and they gasp for air and they just sort of conk out unconscious. And it looks completely authentic, and mm-hmm. it's very 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 unnerving uh, to watch. So I, I was uh, looking into this, and SPCA were on hand, and the way they did this was. They had this huge room filled with carbon monoxide. And they bring this uh, monkey out and he's in a plastic sealed cage. Or is it carbon dioxide? Because carbon carbon monoxide would be just like, you're dead. (laughs) True. Yeah. You're not coming back from this. There's no coming back from this. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's carbon dioxide then. But at any rate, this this whole room completely filled with carbon dioxide. And uh, they bring the monkey out in this glass cage and then... That when they remove the the door to the cage or the the shield to the cage the 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 monkey can no longer breathe so he spasms and he sort of knocks out and it looks like did they just kill this thing anyway <laughs> so there was a man right behind the camera who was in a scuba suit breathing oxygen with an oxygen mask ready to resuscitate the monkey um, just as soon as they got their shot. And in fact, you can see a shadow on the wall rushing, sort of moving along the wall because the guy was going just like that. As soon as they got the mm-hmm. shot, he was sort of running into action and his shadow's there and they only did it once. Um, so, What about anyway. the rats? Did they, did they actually resuscitate I, rats as well? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't find anything about the rat. <laughs> All right. No one cares about rats, I guess. Um, but anyway, SPCA was on hand and observed it and I guess had no problems with it. You know, one could suggest that, well, not suggest, one could say that depriving any animal of its oxygen on purpose is willful kind of torture. Like, <laughs> sounds, sounds like animal cruelty, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, but, you know. but, but at any rate, it is what it is. This is how they got the shot. I was fascinated by this because this, this was a, a moment of the film that really, really, it's really upsetting because... It just looks completely authentic, and there's no there's no fakery in it. This is a real monkey, and he is his muscles are you know spasming and contracting, and you just see the desperation in this poor creature's face. Um, but anyway, it's but true enough. There's there's a shadow. You can see it on the wall. I went back and watched it, and uh, that's someone coming to resuscitate the monkey with a little oxygen mask, like two seconds after. So. Although yeah. I would say probably on this, I'll, I'll probably <clears> say that the um, it's only unnerving and upsetting in that you know they're doing this for a movie. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense, right? Yeah. Because it's just yeah. like, they, like there's no alien threat, right? So they're just doing this to make a Hollywood film. So it's just like this is where it becomes animal cruelty. However, in a real life scenario, you wouldn't have these thoughts because you'd have this overarching mission of like we need to figure this out because humanity or planet as it is is at stake so you know yeah ab- yeah absolutely true and th- this is me bringing my my sensitivities into this right this is something that i'm i'm not in 
the world where I'm a butcher or I work with lab animals or, you know, anything like this. So this is something that just me, I, I'm not used to seeing. So it just sort of stands out. And yes, it's amplified because it's for show. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I would be mortified if I walked into an abattoir. I guarantee it, even though I enjoy my burgers. See, there you go. No, but interesting. <laughs> in, in terms of like a scientific exploration, you could say, well, what, what do you need to test on animals? Well, you have to kind of test these medicines on something, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Before you start even thinking about giving it to humans. So maybe at some point we'll figure out how to do, how, how to model animal testing without animals. That would be great. But for, for the time being, we kind of don't. So that's the, that's the next best thing to do. The only thing we can do is ethically test on as, as few animals as possible. Yeah. And, you know, and, and my, my comments about, you know, how jarring this is to observe, they don't come necessarily from any principles that I have for or against animal testing. Um, it's just more so being subject to it, uh, it just to visualize it. And then on, on top of that too, you know, this is a scene that would have not a, a lot of impact in the script. So when they devise how to do it and you put mm-hmm. your sort of meta, you know, assess how they, how they did this, uh, you know, it sort of stands out as, wow, this is, this is something they did. And, uh, anyway, but, but it is something cinematic to behold. Oh yes. <laughs> Definitely a standout. Even though you're against. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you kind of have <clears throat> like mixed feelings as you watch this, because this looks completely authentic and real, as you said. Because, mm-hmm. well, it is authentic and real. Like it's not like they're, like again, like we talked about the abyss, like late late last year, right? Yeah. They actually did drown the rats in this in oxygenated fluid for it, right? Yep. They just yep. didn't show you how they resuscitated because it shat in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> because it turns out if you actually, you know, like one of the side effects of of filling an animal's lungs with a liquid is that it will just defecate on on the spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we don't get that here. So that that, did, that didn't come up because so it was one Harris's shot. His suit was was like a brown water. <laughs> <laughs> to go with the, the toilet draino that he dipped his hand in to retrieve his ring, but yeah. but anyway. Um <laughs> Harris's toilet water suit. I remember that. Uh, did you have any thoughts about COVID as you were watching this? Did any of the uh, isolation and investigation into how viruses work, did any of this, like it sort of stood out a little bit, just the times that we're in sort of impacted my viewing of this, did that? Isolation, trying to figure out what what this alien thing is doing. So the the sort of um, accelerated research where, you know, you're on the clock. And the fact they have to also, there are these scientists who are just driven by just establishing the facts. They, they all they want to know. They they're not after saving the world per se. All they all they are interested in is figuring out how this thing works and what it does and what it what it does is is harmful to humans. Right? That's their mm-hmm. job. Nothing else. Right? Um, but then in doing so, they also have to deal with politicians who have their own agendas because they have to think about how they will. Whether what what they do is right for them, right for the mm-hmm. country that they serve, or I don't know, right for their polling, or 
will just make them more or less electable in the future. And it's like, what are you people doing? Like you're talking politics, like there's an alien invasion going on and you, you can't even see the aliens because it's green and small and it looks like snot, right? <laughs> yes. But yeah, I totally had, like I had <clears throat> COVID by, by proxy because like my first connection was like, this is like Mayor Vaughn and Jaws. It's just like I'm not closing the beach, like because you just like you have to, you know, evacuate the city, like or the town nearby. And she's like, we're not doing any such thing. And all of a sudden, like everyone there is dead. She's like, oh, that's not good. Should have listened to the scientists. <laughs> that's the COVID connection. Should have listened. There you go. Um, one thing I found interesting, a little bit, like I think it's there, just maybe noteworthy to a point, is that here's another. Michael Crichton story because we just talked about Future World uh, and Westworld, but Westworld in particular, where you've got a company that's sort of the in Westworld, they're sort of they're the boss of this, but it's not an evil corporation. So we can say they're their antagonist and there's their their incompetence or their lack of foresight. There might be sort of a tragic or a fatal flaw in there, but they're not like evil corporate baddies, which is sort of becoming the norm, I guess, in the 70s uh, for different narratives politicians here too like in politicians they end up sort of getting thrown under the bus in the 70s and all kinds of narratives as well because of what's happening with real world politicians i find it interesting in the andromeda strain that the political angle here is um you know transparency and secrecy you know i don't think this film has a point where, where it's saying that you know secrecy and and uh secrecy is bad this this probably works better with this it's it's a little bit against what i might expect the narrative of a 1970s film to Mm -hmm. be because i would i would suggest maybe the andromeda strain is saying that scientists need their space to do their work with minimal interference from uh you know political messaging you know head bosses and and mouthpieces uh so Mm -hmm. it in a way it's it's a little bit anti what you might expect from what's coming out of the counterculture and what's coming out of you know feedback to the nixon regime and and this type of thing so do you have any thoughts on this well nowadays this would be almost misconstrued as oh this is pro something like oh this Hmm. means like we should probably keep it secret because like not having an opinion uh criticizing something that means you're kind of for it right because you we live in a tribal society where you have to pick sides and if you choose not to pick sides then, then you know like that you're you're on you're on the other you're team with them you're with them you know you are the yeah. other right but i feel like this is i to- totally agree that this is um like a slightly ahead of its time in that um like it doesn't try to have a villain in any way mm-hmm. like in a in a different movie, one of these scientists would have an ulterior motive. They would do, you know, like some something stupid because they have a personal motive, right? Or um, the politicians would have an ulterior motive and they would just force this agenda. Like, we're not dropping this bomb or whatever. Like, no, they're following protocol. Mm-hmm. And they're dealing with egos. And then politicians are not villains. They are nuisance. Because they, these are people you have to then explain to them as, they, as though they were five, what's going on. And then they have to make them make the right decisions which is again this is a covid connection like i feel like chris witty and then you know like patrick valance uh advising boris johnson on what he should do or what should be done to um uh to to mitigate the spread of the virus 
in in order to save as many lives as possible, right? Because mm-hmm. like the uh, medical sort of sort of scientists, their only prerogative was save lives, right? Yeah. Find out what this thing does, and save as many people as possible, right? Meanwhile, like the government also has the conflicting agenda of like we also have to save the economy, so certain so so we have to make decisions based on the advice we're getting, but then they have to make decisions themselves. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. sometimes these deci- decisions are maybe not the best for the time because, well, they they decide to favor other things and people's safety. So like you have to sort of the the back and forth between politicians and scientists in this movie are, is kind of like that, right? We're just like, well, we have to think about like, what if we drop the bomb and it's not we we shouldn't have? Then yeah. we're totally not getting elected. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and we're, yeah. we've just detonated an atomic bomb on an American soil. Like no one's ever done that. Do you know how this how this will make us look? And you just think to yourself, like Jesus, doesn't matter really what it makes you look like, right? And yeah. I, but then the scientists later on almost just they behave like scientists. Like facts have changed. We've understood more. That means like we shouldn't have we we shouldn't be dropping this bomb anyway. So and this and the, and the politician goes like wow it looks like the president was right all along i'm just like he wasn't right it was a coin flip right yeah. he didn't know what he was what he was deciding he was just thinking it would look better that he, if he wouldn't so it's not like it was a rationally made decision but the but the scientist also does what a scientist would do lets it slide it's just like I'm, it's not my place to comment on this right yeah they're just like if he, if it makes him sleep at night better then so be it but at least we didn't drop the bomb so yeah. yeah um listening to your talk and especially your earlier comment uh, and what you were saying is like with there being no antagonist here i'm sort of wondering if in a way michael crichton is making disaster movies dressed up as science fiction movies to a point how is the 13th warrior <laughs> a disaster movie okay well i think firstly he he, he swept in well no okay jurassic park Westworld and Andromeda Strain. <laughs> no, Jurassic Park less so because and Jurassic maybe Park even Runaway. A, Jurassic Park has a villain. True, true. Um, but anyway, like I, I, this this is a piece that I think makes this a little bit different. This is this it is absence. a disaster film. This yeah. one is. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess in Jurassic Park, not to get into it too much, I see. Yes, there's a there's a villain and stuff, but it but it's still the situation situations out of control. And you know it's about saving lives, and you know what's what's the best move to make. So like, I, anyway, it's just, it's just a connection I'm start, starting to make in his work. His Runaway is a little bit like that too, even though you get a little bit of you know Magnum PI type of uh, heroics. But anyway, it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. No, I totally right. I think there are like de- de- definitely this and Westworld are are kind of um, dressed to look like. Uh, disaster films, which actually makes sense because early seventies was the disaster films extravaganza in Hollywood. Right? Absolutely, like because that's just, that's something that's going on as as well, right? Like avalanche With a twist. and yeah, this yeah, is the yeah. sort of the Brit. Like, this is the pioneering bit of this sort of like let's just in include the disaster angle in in a science fiction setting, right? Yeah, that feels more like sci fi, but in a way, it's a little bit more the disaster thing, mm-hmm. you know, in a way. Anyway, I'm yeah. sort of running out of Same. gas here. I don't have too much. I don't really have anything else. I guess we talked about the ending already. 
yeah, anything else on your radar, sir? And if not, we'll just jump into our final thoughts. I think I'm good. I think I've, I've, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that I think guys from Caltech and JPL, so which is J Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, they were consulted on this movie con- extensively mm-hmm. on how the science is portrayed. So I think it gives them props where credit yeah. credits actual scientists, top scientists, by the <clears> way. <throat> yeah. Had a, it's kind of like, you know, watch Interstellar and they just get like, I don't know, Rip Thorn or, or Kip Thorn, not Rip Thorn. <laughs> <laughs> you get these sort of physicists to kind of calculate what a black hole would look like they would have a, have this disc and they eventually just photographed one and it actually does have a disc right mm-hmm. yeah so um, it's kind of like this is the level of nerdery nerdum yeah one other just just a little morsel i'll throw out there just to throw into the discussion but i don't really have much to say about it, it was as we were talking um this here seems a precursor. This film seems a precursor to uh, Annihilation from a couple of years ago, in a way, yeah, alien in a way, invasion, yeah. and it's sort of a virus, and it doesn't take like a little humanoid form, and it's not necessarily evil by nature. And anyway, it just it's more of an it's <clears throat> more of a pre- predecessor to Contagion. True. Yeah, I'd say, but yeah, I I I, I think so. Yeah, because this is kind of like even though I think Annihilation kind of goes way. F- way further into kind of just just rhythmic straight up hard science fiction right oh yeah for sure for sure um but just conceptually like what's an alien invasion film look like and let's think that through and why can it not look like you know cancer taking over a body or cancer infiltrating uh you know a system as Mm -hmm. as opposed to like little green men or whatever anyway just a thought that's the last little tidbit i'd throw out there I mean, this is kind of innovating, by the way, when you think about like what the alien is. Like, this mm-hmm. is coming out of uh, after sixties <clears throat> and fifties, where you had these sort of little green gray men in in flying saucers, right? And all of a sudden, like you yeah. have this sort of this movie where it's just a piece of paint. You have, um, in Kaufman's uh, Invasion of the Body Snatcher, yeah. it's just a spore, yeah, from Mars, right? Yeah. Cool. Final thoughts. It's amazing. This is a great film. Absolutely. Really, really enjoyed this. It's riveting, realistic, rambunctious romp. <laughs> Alliteration is fun. Four and a half out of five. <laughs> <clears throat> Brilliant. Um, totally yeah. an uncut gem. Totally an uncut gem. I, yeah, agree. Delicious agree with everything you just said um this is a this is a great film and this is i'm gonna come there it is i haven't done this in a while sorry i I have nothing more to add except four and a half stars (laughs) all right let's go into our tops sir what is your top three and if you've got any others go for it i've got i've got three I'm, i'm gonna limit myself to three As much as this is unnerving and potentially questionable in terms of execution, the animal sequences are absolutely standouts, absolute standouts, when because they look so uh, authentic and convincing, it's frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, 
another another one I've got. Um, okay, this is a small moment, and it's a little bit of a fun moment, so I'm just gonna throw it in. Um, which is the best pickup line in the film is because we didn't talk about these sort of uh, tests that they uh, undergo, and there's a pickup line that I've wrote down for myself is this ends the formal question and please undress. <laughs> 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 computer is telling nice. to the guy and then just how they uh how they have to just like navigate all these tests to kind of just rid themselves of bacteria and they just like they essentially just get themselves probably like a dozen of enemas at the end just like to just completely ruin their microbiome um but yeah this this line is something um and the third one is the in the op- not the very very opening but in the opening sort of sequence of the film where these two scientists actually land in um in the town and they look through windows and there are these sort of very formal sort of snapshots of these mm-hmm. people frozen in these sort of death sort of stairs uh yeah very suggestive i like this although there's one sort of piece of one image that you just like think to yourself like this shouldn't this feels like a political statement because there's this nude hippie. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, just and then there's a close up on her on 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 the sort of this uh, on the little sort of necklace that she has, which is just an excuse to just like close close up on do a close up on her supple breasts bre- breasts. Um, uh, but yeah, and this caused so, some ratings problems too. <laughs> Well, and, they de- yeah. eventually talked it down to whatever the, the PG or whatever was. But I was wondering whether this was the piece of, like, it says nudity. I'm just like, is 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 this uh, the scientist woman undressing? Is this what it is? Because this is also unnerving. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, so these are my three moments. I really, and there are two sequences like that with these sort of, like these sort of um, vignetted sort of mm-hmm. little, yeah. little for, for me, there's there's some crossover here, but an honorable mention, whenever they're um, zooming in, you know, like whatever it is, 400 times on this uh, uh, microscope video system that they have, um, and they, they're they really zoomed in, and this, it, this paint now looks like a little bit of a bulge, like it might actually be um, mm-hmm. biological, then it starts to vibrate and change colors and they get a little bit of a jump scare out of there. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> that does... Well, because she does reacts have like un- this. Very, very interesting. She sees this and she she goes like, hmm. It's not yeah. like... Uh, it, she doesn't react in a Hollywood way. Like, look! No, it's a abs- bug. No, Absolutely. It's just, and she goes like, have you seen this? Did you know? Right. Like she she kind of almost like just... She doesn't trust her eyes because she knows she's tired. Yeah, and I think there's a hum sound or something in there. Anyway, it's played really, played really well. It's an effective little jump scare in its own right. Thought that was really cool. Um, my number three, yeah, the, Re- the the Reese's monkey death scene, just phenomenal. Like it's just really something that I didn't know that I I'd see a moment in this that this I'll always remember. <laughs> feels like a snuff film. Uh, number two. The shots of the dead people in town when the scientists mm-hmm. arrive in the hazmat suits this is Fantastic. what you just mentioned. The the split screen work here is really clever and innovative. Like you've got on one split screen, it's it's not quite a sp- traditional split screen because it's like these frames, 
And uh, there's a lot of work that went into the edit. I forget the editor's name, but Robert Wise said that like he did a lot of work to make this look right. But what you get is um, the, the guys in the hazmat suits look in the window and then you've got a snapshot show up almost like a in a picture frame as the split screen. And it's like you see the person in the window and you see what they see through the window. It's really, really mm-hmm. clever and uh, innovative in its own right. Almost simulates the multitasking layout of Microsoft Windows, to be honest. It's, it's cool. <laughs> So, and then Ten years ahead of time, uh, number one, number one for me is sort of the opening 10 or 15 minutes, like just the, the Piedmont observation scene where the military is on the cliff and they see just enough where they don't want to go any further. You're getting all kinds of information going in over, over the radio to HQ and they're, they're assessing what to do. And then that slowly builds to the flyover where you get a little bit more information that you see a whole bunch of bodies, just totally arresting and absorbing amazing suspense just in that opening mm-hmm. 10 or 15 minutes, something else. All right. Bottom three. Right. Before I do so, I might as well just honorable mention for the top thing is the fact that scientists absolutely are passengers to this. The idea that this, their conclusions, their findings, they have no bearings on anything. I really enjoy that. Mm -hmm. That they're just passengers. They just observe and they realize that this whole, that the big take home message of this film is we're not only woefully unprepared for anything that could potentially fly in here on a meteorite and ruin ruin our day where we we can't really solve these these problems our scientific understanding only allows us to maybe potentially rationalize and and find out answers as to why things are happening but we have no power to affect Mm -hmm. what is happening when it's happening which is which makes you feel incredibly small and insignificant in on on a cosmic scale Right, because a yeah. small piece of green paint can actually go and ruin everyone's day, and all you can do is just cross your fingers that it will mutate, and it will realize, and it will just be blown over o- over the ocean, and it will just neutralize itself in a pH that's different from seven point two, because this is when it actually thrives, right? Yeah, and you just okay, just, just sort of like COVID, just cross your fingers, hope it goes away. Like it's, kind of, it's pretty much yeah. what it is, right? How, totally, totally. Like you, if you think to yourself, like if you actually like on the over long term enough studies, you realize how in how ineffective the vaccine was. Mm-hmm. It just provides a small bump in immunity over a very short period of, period of time, and you realize, wow, this is how much this is how much of a difference we've made. Like it's yeah. essentially just this. This thing played out itself as it as it wished. Yeah, and then we all we could do is just cross fingers, put a piece of cloth over our face, and then just hope that it makes a difference, right? Even though it didn't. Like if you think about it, it just makes no difference. Like like the the reason why we're here in a post pandemic state is because the virus decided to mutate, not decided, was just like naturally decided that we own well uh, it wants to propagate more than it wants to kill right so it just fe- makes you feel so small and stupid like you're just like well we're just passengers to all this yeah S- spent a lot of money doing this but you know yeah well well said but it is <laughs> it's just the way it turned out yeah yeah 
I mean, at least in the UK, we could have, you know, some people could have made better decisions and not send people with COVID into old people's homes. That would have been a good idea. Lessons learned. You know. (laughs) Get it right on the next one. Oh, you know, you live and learn. Well, you live. (laughs) Some of these people did not. Where was I? Bottoms. There's that. Moving, Moving on to your bottom. I've got some uncut gems complaints. Um, the guy dials a number, and I'm pretty sure the number is five 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 five. Brilliant! Because he dials the number, he goes. <laughs> no, if it, it, like, there will be, like, you have to go all the way through the dial to just. Oh, yeah. There's a, you know, you know how lazy it is when there's, there's when I'm not, I'm not calling this fucker because his his home number has too many nines and zeros. <laughs> You have to go all the way through now. Being lazy in the 90s. Look at that. Um, I've got the best. (laughs) Sergeant Dingling being an asshole is a bit of a, is a bit of a, let's just say, honorable mention because he really makes sense as a character who's an asshole and jobs worth, but he annoys me. So I'm going to substitute something else instead. Um, I'm (laughs) I'm going to say, the helmet that they have to wear mm-hmm. for being radiated with xenon. I'm pretty sure this helmet's like, oh, this is how this helmet would look like. But it looks uh, like, like you know, this is Saturday Night Fever meets Daft Punk. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so I love how, is it Kate Reed? She takes it off and she's, she, like, you can see, like, she has, like, she looks like uh, she was just... Uh, it was her first day in Shawshank. Because <laughs> <laughs> they deloused them in the fr- in prison. Yes. They all look there like white. <laughs> from all this powder. <laughs> like, this is your epithelial cell. <laughs> they look like just all she needs a Bible. Is a Bible and her and and clothes. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> go to yourself. But then the face is completely pink because she wore the Daft Punk helmet and the Daft Punk helmet looks stupid. And then the worst moment for me is uh, whenever the uh, the old man guy has to go and uh, save the planet and then turn the key and then this laser just shoots him and he has this laser haze. Oh no, it's a haze. And just, yes. You just had a burn on your hand. Get real. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Oh. Get real. <laughs> Just relax. I mean, he gets burnt on the cheek as well. Oh my goodness. You know. That's a challenging wank. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's me. Uh, awesome. I had a couple questions. So going oh, back I've got to one the... I've got, I've oh. forgot about this one. Okay. I just have questions about how American uh, map manufacturers really sell short Morocco and Spain. Why? There is a map in the sort of the military room where there is a map of the world in the sort of this sort of projection, right? Like normal sort yeah. of rectangular map of the world. I don't know. Maybe this is just me. Like, it makes for for some reason it makes sense to me because I know this is this is all sort of England centric because you know, like the um, the meridian. The yeah, so. So, like, the middle of the map is where Greenwich is. Yeah. Because this is where zero is, right? Yeah. So, it divides the map directly in half 
I'm going from 0 to 180 east and west, right? Uh, but it somehow makes sense because all the continents are there in full. Because mm-hmm. essentially we, we then, on the other side of, of of the globe from where Britain is, there's You're Pacific Ocean. Split in the Pacific, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. But then, because Ameri- it's an American map, so what they do, they make the US center of the map so they divide uh like asia and like it just it, and then you look at the left corner like one corner of the map because they have sort of uh they have like america ridiculous complaint i've ever heard have america in the, in the middle if you go to the left then you have asia and then asia and and europe and the map the the border of the map is where spain and morocco is <laughs> And it's like, what if you want to just look at Morocco? And he's just like, sorry. Uh, so we're going from from here to Mauritania. No, we have to traverse all to the all the way to the other side of the map because this is where this <laughs> tip of Africa is, in Portugal. <laughs> Stupid. That is a fantastic complaint. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, but now. Yeah, uh, US-centered maps are stupid and should be made illegal. <laughs> this, <sighs> where the, the granite should be in the middle of the map because it it divide it it splits the world in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and actually, you know, you have the Kamchatka just exactly right on the right-hand side, and then you have Alaska on the left-hand side. It makes sense. Because on the other hand, you have the uh, the date change line, pretty much. But it sort of zigzags, and as does it not? So does does this does this map that is Greenwich centered does mm-hmm. that not sort of split up Pol- uh, Polynesia or something? Ex- gonna, okay, well, who cares about that. these small little <laughs> islands? But Morocco and Spain, these are big, substantial economies and countries. Like, come on. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm pretty sure like they don't split a single island in half. They'll be just like, well, maybe a part of Polynesia is one one end and the one on the exactly. other. But then again, who lives in there? Well, that's probably where they should Some, survive. Some like Dutch settlers from like the 1500s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. That was fantastic. My bottoms. Some Mennonites from Belgium. <laughs> Okay, I have a couple of questions. I'll just put them under the bottom. And this is the same type of me being negative and sort of calling it a complaint with the movie, where in the reality, it's sort of like the people we talked about at the top of the show who just say, it's boring, but it's really their fault for not investing more or and just pretending it's a complaint to the movie. But I'll ask these questions here. Does uh, Dr. Livett's epilepsy, does that serve any type of purpose? I just... I, did you no, catch she just any? happens to have epilepsy. Just, yeah. She has an epileptic seizure as a result. Like, I wonder, can she drive? Because it looks like it, this this light bla- someone is pumps slow her, enough. Someone pumps the brakes in front of her and she's, you know. No, it's kind of like, I don't know. Do, do you have it in, in Canada? <laughs> like when, so when at a pedestrian crossing, when, I don't know, you press a button and then, okay, well, it turns red. But then before it turns green, so... On some pedestrian crossings, it won't go red, red and yellow, and then green. It will start blinking, blink, blinking yellow for a couple of seconds. As in, like people, people will still potentially be walking. So you're you're, you're supposed to pay mm-hmm. attention. But if there's no one around, you can already, you can drive. 
we so, do have instances of blinking yellow yield signs and then some yeah, so traffic she lights get, she after get seizures midnight. Out of that. Yeah, every and some places after midnight or after one in the morning, the the red lights on traffic lights will just sort of blink red so that anyone coming along can treat the the intersection as a stop sign as opposed to a full on stop. So anyway, um, yeah, she she wouldn't do well. <laughs> but but my question is: Is there any purpose that that serves at all? Like you know, except that the, you get a good little one liner, possibly one of the only one liners in there is about the red lights and how they reminded her of her days in the brothel, which she says sarcastically, <laughs> but anyway, okay. So I don't think there was too much of a purpose. There's the that, please undress so. one liner. Come on. Yeah, true. This yeah. And any of the one liners, please undress. There's, there's, there's a few and they tend to revolve around her. She's pretty good in this. I'll say, um, all right. Yeah. I also grumbled a bit about the, uh, the laser when he gets shot at the laser that just seems to oh. stupefy him and dumbfound him and he's got this laser shock of some sort where he's sort of hobbling around and really sort of dragging out this shock. countdown <laughs> so uh i had that i feel um, sorry for this poor woman who had to record all this all the audio for this like detonation in 10 minutes nine minutes she knows what she's recording yeah <laughs> five five 59, 58 seconds to detonation, 57 seconds to detonation. Uh, Anyway, number two. Oh, there was sort of an awkward cut at one point where the scene was, you know, sort of chugging along and then abrupt cut to the pilot whose mask just sort of becomes where uh the the rubber starts to become powder and sort of falls apart it's a very abrupt cut from the scene that preceded it to that i found um and then my bottom bottom is there's a moment where dr hall's meditation so that's arthur hill as i recall um we see he's meditating and then we sort of go into a flashback where we see his thoughts and then a, a which is which entail a flashback to one of the speeches he gave one day i just felt that was a little bit hokey and and felt a little bit of the storytelling of the era which most of the film does not uh is this sort of flashback speech directly from his meditation felt a little awkward but that's it um, we've gotten to the end of the Andromeda strain. It isn't really streaming anywhere that I know of that I could find in any uh, major jurisdiction, but it's a, it's for rent pretty much everywhere, um, and it's available on physical media. There is an Arrow 4K Blu-ray, which is mm-hmm. loaded with special features, but I'm pretty sure most of those special features are available on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I don't so, have the Arrow Blu-ray. I have the previous release. Okay. Um, so yeah, we both recommend that you go out, seek this film out, check it out. It's fantastic. Um, if you can find us Uncut Gems, uh, on our social media, that's great. Uh, drop us a like or send us a note. You can find us on our website again. That's www.uncutgemspodcast.com. You can brown all of our stuff there. Everything that we do, uh, Jakob, where can the people find you? Oh, yeah, they can find me at Talk About Film on Twitter, Jakob slash Letterbox slash on film.com, clapperltd.co.uk. That's me. Perfect. 
And you can find me, Randy, on Twitter at Randy Burrows. You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7. You can find me on clapperltd.co.uk. And you can find me on my Facebook group where every June I'm fairly active. We have little uh, daily chats on there on cool little topics. That's Island Film Geeks on Facebook. And uh, we want all of you to join us here on the main show next week where we will be talking more Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton June continues. We are going to be discussing coma. Uh, So that's it for us. Have a fantastic week. Disengage and program. Stop. Stop.